0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello, everybody, and uh, welcome back to uh, New Books in uh, Economic and Business History, uh, a podcast channel um, on the New Books Network. I'm Ghassan Moazin, one of the hosts of the channel. Uh, And today uh, we'll be talking uh, to Dr. Peter Hamilton, um, who is currently moving from his previous position uh, uh, as assistant professor at Trinity College Dublin, uh, uh, to a new position as assistant professor at Lingnan University uh, in Hong Kong. And we will today be talking about his recent book, uh, Mate in Hong Kong, Trans-Pacific Networks and a New History of Globalization, uh, which came out at the beginning of uh, 2021 uh, with Columbia University Press. And it's really a fascinating study of the role that Hong Kong uh, and Hong Kong elites played in globalization and Sino-U.S. relations in the second half of the 20th century. Uh, so, Peter, welcome uh, to the New Books Network. Thank you so much for having me. It's, it's great to be here. Uh, yeah, thanks for taking the time. Um, so, Peter, before we uh, delve into the book, uh, as always, I was wondering whether you could uh, talk a bit about um, uh, basically how you came to the study uh, of modern China and in particularly Hong Kong and this particular uh, book, uh, project.
2: Well, like like most academics, I imagine you know the uh, the journey towards this project has been you know a long one and involving both um, academic interests and just personal experience. I first went to Hong Kong um, after graduating from Yale as an undergraduate with the Yale China Association, um, and with the Yale China Association, we taught at the Chinese University of Hong Kong for two years as Yale China teaching fellows. Uh, but on the side, I did an internship with several local historians, Hong Kong historians, on a project called the Dictionary of Hong Kong Biography. And so in assisting and researching and editing and writing entries for that project, um, I really kind of you know learned a lot about Hong Kong history and, and it sparked my interest in this Really, rather unusual and extraordinary place. Um, but then, when I went to graduate school at the University of Texas uh, at Austin, the it was very striking to me very quickly as to how absent Hong Kong was from the historiography of modern China, and that throughout so many different studies, different you know uh, different fields, different subfields, Hong Kong was just not not even in the index. Um, mm. And so as somebody who had then been previously just immersed in a lot of research on it, in many cases, I knew that actually Hong Kong had played a role in some of these different histories that had just not been mentioned. And so that really kind of was the entry point for then doing a dissertation in this area as it just felt like the thing that I had to contribute and the thing that I wanted to talk about a lot um, uh, across a lot of different papers and and things like that. but of course, the the book has evolved substantially from the dissertation, um, and so where the dissertation was somewhat of a you know huge <laughs> information dump on a lot of this, the book process has then further narrowed it down to um, these particular figures in the book and uh, their strategies.
1: Oh, yeah, that's that's fascinating. Yeah, I mean, I, as a as a historian that was uh, sort of uh, mainly trained, also as a as a historian of modern China, I can certainly. You know, agree that Hong Kong is sort of uh, conspicuously absent. You know, we are very focused, uh, you know, on, on Shanghai. There has been so much work on uh, on that, but uh, but sort of yeah, Hong Kong is sort of always a bit absent, surprisingly, which is I think why um, yeah, your book is really uh, really an important uh, intervention. Well, okay. um, you just mentioned that there was, of course, uh, and I can certainly um, sort of yeah experience it as well. Um, there, there was obviously sort of a period between the dissertation and and uh, and, uh, and 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 where you are now, when the book came out. And I mean, you did postdocs, uh, of course, at Columbia University and um, at the Schwarzman College. So, could you talk a bit about like what what exactly changed and how you developed the dissertation into the book uh, that we have at the moment?
2: Yes, and I imagine for many listeners, it's a process that they've either gone through themselves or are going through and, and, um, it's a journey. (laughs) Um, for me, the, uh, the project most especially changed in order to, uh, narrow the focus. And like many dissertations, there just was an enormous amount of material in the dissertation, um, that made for, um, unpleasant reading (laughs) if nothing else. Um, and so, um, you know, through council of mentors and my own interests, um, kind of came to the realization of what truly interested me and what I truly thought was special, what was, um, you know, new uh, and exciting. Um, and that, that was the, uh, the role of the private sector um, elites in Hong Kong on, a, on the global stage. You know, it's one thing that was more emphasized in the dissertation that is less in the book is the role of the state and the kind of deep amounts of research on the U.S. government or the British colonial government um, that kind of uh, got uh, edited down in the final book manuscript. Mm -hmm. Um, But another part of the process was, of course, there have just been so many new digitalized sources since I wrote the dissertation and not to age myself, but, you know, that's only six years ago, but, you know, in the past six years, so many, sources have now been put online. And of course, that just makes things much, much easier to find new sources to track down more information on particular people or companies. And so the, the best example, I think, is <clears throat> during the dissertation process, I had to access Hong Kong newspapers in person. You know, either, oh, okay. Yeah. Either in the bound copies in the Central Library or on microfilm. But now anyone in the world can access Hong Kong newspapers um, it, Chinese language or English language. Um, you know, and that just enables all kinds of research um, speeds and processes that wouldn't have been possible before or would have taken
1: forever. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Yeah. I, I can say that the, I sort of had similar experiences of, you know, suddenly after I had done the, the research with the actual you know, physical copies and mean to go everywhere in person uh, a lot of stuff got digitized, so but in there, of course, it's a wonderful thing that that's possible now. Um, all right, then uh, let's uh, let's jump into the book. Um, I thought we, before we go into into the detail uh, of, um, of the several chapters that you have, um, I was wondering whether you could sort of you know if you, if you could sort of try and summarize a bit what you know what the book is uh, uh, sort of trying to argue in general about Hong Kong in sort of the second half of the of the twentieth century.
2: The book seeks at least to restore Hong Kong to a really key, pivotal position in US led global capitalism after 1945, and then the reintegration of China into that system from the 1970s. Um, And that, particularly in focusing on um, framing the question around questions of economic development um, as well as Sino US relations, previous studies have largely cast Hong Kong in what I would say are quite problematic terms as things such as a little dragon, a little tiger, um, an East Asian miracle, in which Hong Kong's particularities and and very uh, weird uh, conditions in many sense um, are often overlooked um, in order to focus on bigger nation states like South Korea or Japan or, or Singapore. And that part of what's so interesting and important and special about Hong Kong is that it, it is not a nation state. Um, it did not fit into a lot of these narratives and molds. And so really trying to not only position Hong Kong globally as an important nexus and node in a lot of different processes, but look at Hong Kong really on its own terms in this period um, and think very, very carefully about the terminologies used the approach is made um, in order to try to come up with its own narrative and its own terms. Um, That's a multi, multi multi-factor argument and approach, you could say.
1: Sure. Absolutely. No. And um, um, I think that is something that the book is actually really successful about, you know, not thinking about um, in a sense, yeah, trying to get us away from thinking about uh, sort of, the second global economy or sort of the globalization in the sort of last half century, just from a, uh, you know, Western perspective, I think uh, uh, that that is really quite uh, uh, successful in doing that. Um, okay. Another sort of more broad question I wanted to ask, I think, and that is important before we sort of start off and go into more detail, um, is that uh, obviously sort of at the heart of the book is a particular group of Hong Kong elites, uh, I, I guess we could call them, um, and you call them hua shang or mm. straddling merchants, I guess we could uh, put it into, uh, if, if you put the Chinese into uh, into English. And it's sort of a play on hua shang, I guess, uh, that the, the overseas Chinese yeah. that you see sort of before World War One, before World War II rather, um, uh, uh, that are very important in sort of connecting China uh, in, in Southeast Asia and beyond. Um, uh, and you also talk in particular about what you call hua shang strategies. So particular strategies that these, elites uh, develop. So I wonder whether you could talk, uh, discuss a bit, um, uh, you know, who are these people? Why did you come up with this particular term? Mm. Um, And what are Kwasang strategies?
2: Before, as you point out, you know, before World War II, Hong Kong really wasn't that unusual. It was one of many European colonial entrepots all along the African and Asian coastlines. And within that world and system as many of your listeners already know Huashang or overseas chinese merchants played absolutely fundamental roles um over many centuries in facilitating trade movement migration um, in p- large part through their strategies of collaboration with european colonial empires and so uh strategies of pragmatism mobility adaptation, evolve, I argue, after World War II, um, in particular in Hong Kong, into Quashang strategies, in part, one, because most of those other colonial entrepôts are absorbed into developmental nation states, um, and Hong Kong is not, and B, because it is no longer European colonial empires and their, their forms of imperial rule that... Need to be collaborated with, but instead the new U.S. hegemon, kind of which whose empire operates in different ways, and thus requires different strategies, but also opens up different possibilities. Um, and so, Kwashieng strategies seeks to capture that it is this permutation or evolution or even intensification of Kwashieng strategies that is possible among this group of people in Hong Kong in this particular time period. Um, and that as we go through in the book, and perhaps <laughs> too much detail, um, lots of different kinds of elite people could become and did become Kwa Sheng in Hong Kong after 1945. Some of them were um, already quite U.S. oriented or U.S. educated, say when they came from Shanghai, such as the Tang family, that is kind of a through line throughout the book. While other Figures had no previous connections or seeming interest in the United States, but read the writing on the wall and begin to either shift their business, um, pivot towards collaboration with the U.S. government for pay because they need the money, um, or, for example, send their children to school in the United States as part of an explicit strategy of both business as well as potential migration.
1: Yeah, that's that's, and we'll get into that more. I think this whole connection between education in Hong Kong and, and, and business is obviously like a, a really key insight that one, one gets from the book. Um, I think one thing we should mention though, is, uh, and you, and you point that out in your book, of course, is that, uh, Kwa is, it's not something that these people would refer to no. themselves, right? It's, it's, it's a, a sort of a, a concept that you, um, uh, uh, came up with uh, in order I... to better sort of identify this particular group. Yes.
2: Yes, and it is not meant to capture an identity. And uh, I don't believe that many of most of these individuals would necessarily would necessarily have seen themselves as the same or uh, interlinked with other people who I label with the strategy. But instead that they have, whether they know it or not, um, these, these groups of, of clusters of individuals are pursuing very similar worldviews and kind of strategies for the development of their family and their business um in this time period
1: yeah exactly yeah i think that's uh, but i think i mean the concept does this this work very well i think for the reader certainly to, to grasp but um the group of people that you that you're sort of focusing in on um, okay i think uh we we, we should uh we should uh, delve in a bit uh, into a bit more detail um so i think in the first chapter you uh, you know you do sort of a very good job in sort of setting the scene um, a bit in the in sort of post-war Hong Kong, but also more, more broadly post-war, post-World War II um, uh, uh, globalization uh, for the reader. So I wonder whether, you know, you could do for for the benefit for our benefit now, uh, for the listeners, you could also set the scene a bit, um, sort of how does Hong Kong look, uh, what does it look like uh, after uh, World War II, and what is sort of the scene more broadly uh, looking like in East and Southeast Asia?
2: Mm. Chapter One does does a fair amount of work um, to kind of set us up to see where the largest bulk of these future Kuashang came from, which is around Shanghai, um, for a variety of reasons, and why those histories of education and business had developed in pre-war China in that region, as well as the prior background history of Hong Kong and how all of this shifts through the late, uh, as I call it in the book, kind of the communist transition, you know, and so kind of this extended period of post-war Chinese civil war into the early 1950s, um, in which Hong Kong's position is shifting very rapidly, in part because of the decline of the British Empire, the rise of the U.S., and the instability in China, and that as all of these shifting forces and factors um themselves out it resets the terrain very substantially um, in hong kong particularly with the u.s embargo on china in the korean war um, and that this really kind of realign, begins to realign things as many previous scholars have emphasized but kind of in here emphasizing how much it fosters dependence on the u.s market as the essential sales destination for these new industrialists and that many of the industrialists who came to Hong Kong from Shanghai, you know, uh, this was very improvised. There was not a large enough local market to sustain mass manufacturing in Hong Kong. And most of the regional neighbors are themselves pursuing industrial development and protect highly protectionist trade policies. Um, and it is the U.S. that increasingly they look towards. And the embargo makes that actually really quite difficult. Um, and so kind of setting the stage in chapter one to see how the terrain has shifted and how, as we enter the 1950s, these transplants to Hong Kong are thinking through this new worldview and kind of seeing what new opportunities in the post-war world are opening up while, and which former opportunities are closing down, such as um, uh, participation in the British imperial system is increasingly uh less attractive, um, at least commercially.
1: Yeah, exactly. I think, um, I mean, uh, as you mentioned, there there, there is uh, um, obviously a lot of migration going on uh, from Shanghai in particular um, uh, to Hong Kong during this period sort of 45, 49. Um, and uh, I mean, I, I guess for, for sort of um, listeners that might not be uh, that familiar with uh, uh, the history of modern China, we should say you obviously um, have Civil war going on uh, in the mainland at that time, and so a lot of the, you know, a lot of sort of business people that had been in 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 the industrial capital of China in Shanghai um, until then, uh, sort of had to had a choice to make, and quite a lot went uh, went to Shanghai, and I think um, uh, you described this, you know, very nicely in 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 the first chapter um but i was wondering whether you could i mean one thing i was really fascinated by is uh and you've already touched upon that is is the korean war and how mm. the korean war actually in a sense um sort of re realigns i guess the the kind of flows of, of of capital and commodities that run through hong kong but also um yeah the whole direction of hong kong so really uh, more and more towards uh, the U.S. So I wonder whether you could talk um, a bit more about um, about that, but also what role Hong Kong sort of played in the East Southeast Asian economy due to the Korean War or during the Korean War. The mm. war is a huge
2: stimulus, as as so many wars are. Um, if you if you're not in the zone of combat, um, and provides a huge amount of post war recovery capital, uh, particularly for Japan, but also. Uh, Hong Kong and, and other places in order to supply the U.S. military with all the the goods uh, uh, and provisions that it requires. Um, but simultaneously, because of the legal moves put in place, which particularly once the United Nations signs on, Britain and thus British colonial governments are legally obligated to enforce, it is a huge disruption. The embargo is a huge disruption Um, to at least what is legally possible. Um, And that you can rapidly see many businesses, as uh, an example I point out in the book of the Shanghai Commercial and Savings Bank, you know, where they sever ties with all the mainland branches and, you know, begin to reorient towards the trans pacific economy as where the future business is going to be based. Um, And that while covert forms of business absolutely did continue, um, for those particularly textile industrialists who are kind of at the center here, who are who need imported cotton um, in order to uh, sustain the cotton mills, and who need access to the U.S. and other markets, they just cannot be participating in illegal, um, you know, forms of of uh, counter against UN and you against U.S. UN sanctions and U.S. law. Um, Particularly, as well as as I point out in the chapter, that the way that the embargo is phrased, it assumes that all Hong Kong Chinese people are PRC citizens, and thus do not have access, the legal right to export goods to the United States. Um, and so, for again, these individuals, um, that's a must <laughs> um, to get out of of that of that provision. And so, it further heightens the attraction of both the social capital that one could leverage to say, you know, you know me, John, I'm not a communist, you know, uh, <laughs> take me off the list or to actually become a U.S. citizen and thus have a, a document to waive, um, you know, that, that I am maintain my access to the U.S. market. Mm-hmm. So the Korean War, and, and there's so much more. I mean, throughout the whole book, um, you know, there is more to say on so many of these topics and much more research to be done. Uh, but the Korean War is a really fascinating um, rupture and infusion and reorientation of a lot of different things. Um and kind of um, sets up in particular this for Hong Kong, this certif- comprehensive certificate of origin system um that scaffolds local manufacturers towards looking um internationally and primarily towards the US market as their essential sales destination.
1: Yeah, that's an I think that's really, really um sort of a fascinating insight that certainly I got from uh, from the book um in the next chapter you then sort of uh, after having sort of set the scene a bit um you turn to um looking a bit more about the growing u.s influence uh, in uh, sort of u.s organizations but also chinese church groups and china and, and u.s missionary uh, groups in um in hong kong and that sort of then sets up a uh, sort of your more in-depth uh, discussion of of education in the chapters thereafter but i thought whether you can first give us sort of an idea of um, what the U.S. influence, both through church groups, but also, so Chinese church groups, but also um, U.S. missionaries uh, was mm. in Hong Kong uh, after uh, after World War II.
2: So this is the chapter that um, engages, I think, with a lot of the m- most exciting and, and vibrant scholarship on Hong Kong in the post-war era. Um, such as with Chiquan Mark and Laura Matakoro and Madeleine Shu, Glenn Peterson. So many scholars have done really fascinating work about um, the early Cold War in Hong Kong, the quote-unquote refugee crisis and the ways that this intersects with migration and international charity. Um, and as Chiquan Mark originally pointed out, at least to me, um, the British colonial government did restricted the most overt forms of US outreach in Hong Kong you know of propaganda and espionage and such and so chapter 2 digs into kind of the pivot that then ensues and that because too overt of propaganda and espionage etc was not possible in Hong Kong in order to preserve its stability and relationship with Beijing the US government what has been missed and what's being contributed, I hope, here is the ways in which U.S. money begins to flow behind the scenes into all of these American missionary groups, um, many of whom the individual missionaries have a long experience in China. they would lived for years in all over the country and fluent in multiple dialects and thus are kind of ideal workers uh, uh, for U.S. cultural diplomacy, in essence, even if they're not necessarily aware that that is what they're, they're being put to, uh, put to do. Um, and so this huge amount of money begins to flow through different church groups, international church groups, um, into h- hundreds of schools, um, as well as clinics, hospitals, etc., cetera, around Hong Kong, framed largely around a discourse of philanthropy and charity, um, which is a little misleading. Um, and that for me in this project, what is a particular interest there is the role of, again, U.S. educated and U.S. oriented Chinese elites there who are usually the president, the chairman, the chairwoman of this school, this church, this clinic, this community center. Um, and very interesting dynamics going on there where they are aware of where the money is coming from and kind of the overall goals of this school, which often include um not just Christianity or basic literacy, but um, promoting U.S. international leadership in various ways. Um, and that this, in Chapter 2, most particularly, is how these this larger reorientation begins to first expand beyond this very privileged elite that is the focus in Chapter 1. And it really extends limited <laughs> opportunities into ordinary communities to engage with the United States and to benefit from U.S. outreach, most especially through through education and the very small chance, but very attractive chance to go to higher education in the United States uh, and potentially for the whole family to migrate as a result.
1: Yeah, wonderful. I think, um, yeah, I mean, especially this uh, sort of uh, the, the impact uh, that American influence um, has then yeah, on education. And also the, the the monetary flows, which um, I think um, is super interesting how you how you discuss that and and dig that out sort of from the sources uh, in that chapter. But obviously there's sort of a particular um, influence then on on secondary education. But in the next chapter, um, in chapter three, you then also look at the impact of this this U.S. influence that actually has on um, higher education uh, yes. in Hong Kong. And of course you had the you know, the University of Hong Kong was there already, uh, was a sort of very much British colonial institution, um, but uh, the, um, this this increasing U.S. presence then, as you describe, uh, sort of also uh, has its ramifications in higher education. Uh, and I wonder whether you could talk a bit more about that.
2: Yes, and the higher education is a different terrain. And so it brings us into a uh, more conflict <laughs> with the British colonial government, which fascinated me because in chapter two with primarily uh, primary secondary education, vocational education, largely the British colonial government was quite welcoming, glad for the U.S. outreach um, most of the time, and generally really rather helpful, you know, um, in that often the American missionary group or charity didn't really know that much about Hong Kong, you know, and often the British colonial government steered them with, you know, quite a lot of time and investment into actually, I think a better project would be over here. This neighborhood doesn't have this kind of resource yet and, and let us help you make it a better school, make it a better community center. Higher education is, is very different um, in that particularly as decolonization accelerates, there's a very active view of higher education as one of the more positive legacies of the British empire and as a potential way to keep the Commonwealth together through informal association and shared ties and shared systems. So U S outreach into higher education and the U S government and, and other uh, actors interest in quote unquote, future leaders, um, rings a lot of alarm bells and kind of threatens the colonial government in certain ways. Um, both in terms of their legacies, but also in terms of what they see as you know a rational organization of the system and that. US higher education and Anglophone British higher education are just very different in, in the terms they use and and the, uh, the, the length of the program, everything is it's quite different. And so when the refugee colleges like Chi begin to form, they form as four-year institutions that are, awarding bachelor's degrees with magna cum laude and summa cum laude for their honor systems and calling, you know, the first year English class freshman English. And so in the colonial record, I mean, it was some of the most fun archival documents for me to read. You get very tart replies from colonial officers, um, one whom even enjoyed uh, correcting the American English in the, in the missionaries' letters and replacing it with British English, almost obsessively, um, so you can tell that they're 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 riled by this and, and threatened by this, um, and so this particularly comes to a head with the formation of the Chinese University and what form this institution will take and who will lead it. Um, it's kind of a flashpoint and turning point, as I say in the book, um, in chapter four, um, where these three of these refugee colleges, um, kind of join the Chinese university project and the ways in which why the British colonial government is doing this, um, and, and what the, the various uh, Chinese faculty, Chinese administrators, and U.S. partners all hope to gain out of this project.
0: Slash NBN fifty to get fifty percent off.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And in chapter four, uh, we we then really see the this 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 whole conflict come to a, a sort of pivot in a certain sense. And and we meet a I think a very, one of the many actually uh, fascinating person historical figures that that come out in your book. Um, but in chapter four, it's it's particularly the first president of ZHK Li Chongming or in 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 um, and he is sort of uh, yeah, he he plays a very important role in sort of uh um making it impossible basically for the British to uh, sort of reclaim <laughs> CHK. But but uh, maybe you can talk a bit more about, about him and, and what his sort of role uh was in this whole story of the Anglo-American conflict of in higher education in Hong Kong.
2: Yeah, Lee Li- ming is a fascinating individual about whom again I think so much more should be done. Um He's the only figure in the book for whom a whole chapter is focuses on a single individual. And I think that he merits that because at least for me in doing the research, it was around him most especially where it became very clear to me how conscious these strategies could be. And particularly as an economist, um, um, that, you know, an academic economist that he understood well the economic implications of the educational choices he was making. Um, And that um, rather than it being about, you know, any kind of pro-American chauvinism or, you know, pro-British chauvinism, that it really is a pragmatic strategy about where power is and what would best suit the students of our university to have a bright future. Um, And that in terms of trade, investment, multinational corporations um, in the non-communist world um, you know, that he's is, he is determined and he uses the word all the time international uh, to make CUHK an international institution and explicitly not a British Commonwealth institution. Um, and that, that is very controversial at the time. And, and as somebody who um, himself was U.S. educated, who had been a development technocrat, for the nationalist government um, who had been involved in some of the power politics and corruption scandals of the UNRRA and the CNRRA in the post-war period. Um, This was a a, a very savvy operator um, who uh, kind of, uh, for better or for worse, was often willing to be kind of a railroad um, and not afraid of controversy or academic, fellow academics dislike of him. Um, and again, better for better or for worse. Um, but uh, yes, by, particularly coming from before he, be, he was vice chancellor, he was um, at the University of California, Berkeley. Um, and that coming from Berkeley to take up this position, um, very carefully considering what he wanted to achieve um, and kind of uh, pursuing it um, rather methodically um, to recruit U.S. money and expertise into the Chinese university, including um, in places where we would just logically assume that British influence would have been the likely, you know, the default choice. Um, he he very actively replaces that influence with American influence. And the, the example that comes pops to mind here is the library system, where the study had already been conducted as to how to integrate the three constituent colleges of Chinese universities, libraries together. And um, they're going to do it on model it on SOAS's library. Um, and he, he throws that study out and replaces it with a library, replaces it with a library of Congress system and hires a Chinese American librarian from Harvard, Yanching to come Alfred coming Cho, to come and be the first chief librarian. And so, in all these different ways, he's implanting systems at CUHK, different honor systems, different degree programs. I think the, the and this will come back to this later uh, in our discussion um, about seeding my next project. Uh, but, you know, he very actively spearheads and seeds the first MBA, Masters in Business Administration program um, in East or Southeast Asia, um, again, as a link to the United States and this very American degree. That will be recognizable and will be attractive um, for, its, for its graduates to have. Um, so, yeah, so uh, over his about 50, I think 50, 15 year tenure as the vice chancellor of CUHK, Li Choming is very active. And obviously, it's not he alone who's doing this, but a very active captain of the ship um, into making CUHK as quote unquote an international institution as possible which largely means um, reorienting it towards the US and towards the dias the Chinese diaspora that is interlinked with the United States by this point
1: yeah fascinating and what do the i mean do the british in the end acquiesce to that or uh, yeah do they do they in the end sort of say uh, well there's nothing we can do or is there some some resistance still throughout as
2: as, um, as you see in as you've seen in the book um there are there is a fair amount of personal dislike of the vice chancellor and, and many of them find him gauche, uh, rude, abrasive, but they do subscribe to the principles of academic freedom and autonomy and that the uh, the colonial government of Hong Kong is not in a legal position to dictate the academic policies of the Chinese university. And so often they say, well, we would obviously prefer the Chinese University to adopt the British honor system, but if the Vice Chancellor thinks it best, then we will defer to his judgment um and so I think a lot of the time, particularly in the the uh minutes of the colonial government, there's a fair amount of what is going on you know and and got kind of big question marks scrawled over things um but they both legally and kind of ethically um you know are Try to stay out of direct interference into the university's affairs. Um, uh, so there's a couple uh, ironies there. As I mean, even with his initial appointment, um, the British colonial government was somewhat skeptical, but simultaneously, old histories of racism and exclusion made them realize that there were no senior university administrators of Chinese ethnicity in. The British Empire at that time, mm-hmm. um, and that thus, um, to have a high-profile candidate worthy of the position, they realized that they would most likely be hiring someone from the United States. Um, and so it intersects, that kind of contingent choice intersects with all these other histories going on in the first half of the book, um, and kind of puts into place someone who is eager to push this all forward um, as a developmental strategy, I argue.
1: Yeah, yeah no, and then and then uh, um, yeah, that's absolutely uh, fascinating, and interesting. I think how um, yeah certainly how 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 this all comes together in uh, in chapter four. Um, but after I think um, after you uh, sort of uh, set the scene in terms of education uh, in uh, in these chapters that we've just discussed, um, chapters five and six then sort of turn more to the business and the economic side and how. Um, this whole sort of U.S. influence in uh, 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 education uh, is then sort of is then seen or is reflected in in um, how Hong Kong what role Hong Kong plays basically in post World War II and, and the global economy. Then, um, so I wonder whether you can talk a bit um, uh, about you know the nineteen fifties nineteen sixties what you do in, in chapter five and what these kind of Kwang elite uh, networks. Um, uh, what role they actually play in in Hong Kong's economic development and global economic entanglements.
2: Mm. Yes, by the the early to mid-1960s, a lot of these trade and educational shifts of the 1950s are beginning to coalesce and bear fruit, you might say. Um, And that um, because of the increasing uh, trade linkages with the United States, U.S. investment is accelerating rapidly. And by 1963, the U.S. becomes the largest outside investor in Hong Kong. Um, And simultaneously, the number of Hong Kong students going to higher education in the United States is doubling and tripling in these early years each year, um, going from a few hundred into thousands and thousands. Um, And so... Those processes of increasing commercial and educational engagement, I argue, are very much interlinked and that you have an increasing um, demographic in Hong Kong of local U.S. educated people who return from higher education and are extremely well positioned and prepared to conduct trade and investment with the U.S., to work with American partners in Hong Kong, to take jobs with US multinational corporations as they begin to accelerate their investment in Hong Kong. Um, and that those kinds of strategies that Li Choming pursued at Chinese University, um, kind of pushing all of this, pushing all of this forward, say, through a business school. And so in chapter five, as you say, pivoting back to the business area, looking particularly at banking and investment and the ways in which um, these Kuasheng actors begin to uh, reorient uh, banking and particularly investment into industry in Hong Kong um, but as well as recruiting outside investment into Hong Kong um, in the
0: uh,
2: some of the in the kind of middle section of the chapter um, f- in order to diversify from uh, s- simple cotton spinning into more complex weaving and apparel making as export uh, uh Quotas and other trade restrictions come into place that limit the the export of cotton yarn, um, as well as then into U.S. direct investment into some really enormous flagship projects in Hong Kong in the late 60s. Um, And throughout all these flows of money, we have repeatedly the same type of kwashang actors who are U.S. educated and or U.S. oriented, um, who are brokering facilitating, enabling these capital flows in large part for their own benefit. <laughs> um, uh, but simultaneously, um, I argue at least as well for overall Hong Kong's benefit as well um, and kind of moving it more and more towards the center of um, the, the U.S. expansion in Asia and the, the U.S.-led globalization process as, as we might term it.
1: Yeah, and... Um... I mean, as we then sort of move into the 1970s, still before sort of what we normally discover or, or consider that the official opening up of China in 1978, um, you then done sort of in, in Chapter 6, again, sort of show the intersection between, um, you know, these educational circulations in terms of all these, um, you know, we've talked a lot about American-led, I guess, or influenced education uh, in um, in Hong Kong. But of course, as you sh- particularly show in Chapter Six, I think a lot of people, uh, you know, from Hong Kong go abroad uh, to the United States, and you then connect that and make the point—if I understood it correctly—that that then also had a direct impact on on these um, sort of global circulations of capital and commodities uh, in uh, uh, in the 1970s between the U.S. in particular and um, and Hong Kong. So I wonder whether you can talk about this connection, sort of between, I guess, overseas students, education, and uh, sort of the the growing boom in Hong Kong in the 1970s.
2: Yeah, um, the we we can particularly I think trace it through, um, you know, as as I do in the chapter through through all of these, you know, kind of wealthy families who are really often rather abruptly pivoting towards education um, in the United States, and that um, kind of the tongue shipping family being a good example where no real. Prior connections, substantial connections to the U.S. before about 1960, and then around 1960, it becomes all about the U.S. and all of the children are going to go to school in boarding school and/or college in the United States. Um, and in, you know, kind of the, at the same time, the Orient overseas shipping business is increasingly focused on the U.S. as well. And that, as some of these children, rarely all, but as some of these children return to Hong Kong to take over the company we can then trace the evolutions of these companies in response and so um, the example that I go into in the most detail there in part just because of the available material and sources um, is Li and Fung um, and the, the Fung brothers very actively uh, kind of transform Lee and Fung as a, from a kind of patriarchal Chinese family company into a u.s modeled conglomerate. Um, and a lot of that, again, involves quite a bit of conflict, um, including firing their own family members from the company and replacing them with college-educated managers, taking the company public, all sorts of increased accountability and, and transparency, as they see it, uh, in the operations of the, of the company. Um, but the what this enables is, in part, many, many, many US uh, Hong Kong companies to ride the kind of seismic financial shifts of the 1970s to transform into much larger and much more, you might say, sophisticated service-oriented businesses. Um, So in the case of Li and Feng, moving from a simple import-export company to a much more complex kind of commodity chain broker, um, as well as insurance agent, uh, a freight handler, uh, all sorts of other things. Um, And that Uh, Orient Overseas moves into container shipping um, and so on and so forth. Many different companies in the early 1970s in Hong Kong kind of reemerge into U.S. modeled, at least I argue, you know, corporations um, that are extremely, again, well prepared to take advantage of the later opportunities that are going to come in China. You know, and that it isn't just money that Hong Kong had um, and was able to invest into China, but also uh, you know a, a world leading um, amount of expertise and access to the latest in everything in the world um, that will be, as I discussed in chapter seven and eight, very very important to China's opening up, reform and opening up um, from the early nineteen seventies, um, which says. Kind of the really the main point of chapter seven, which is trying to mm-hmm. kind of de-emphasize a bit the 1978 uh, watershed, and instead show that from Hong Kong's perspective, much of this was in motion and even kind of common knowledge um, from 1971, 1972, moving forward as increased economic possibilities opened up.
1: Yeah, exactly. I mean, before we sort of. Uh, come to the reform and opening, uh, I, I just want to highlight, particularly, I, I mean, as a sort of historian of, of Chinese business, I found the, um, you know, the example of Lian Feng that you just mentioned, um, but more in, generally sort of this, how you describe, you know, in, in terms of our understanding of the development of, of the Chinese company or the particular form of Chinese business, the impact of U.S. education. I mean, if I remember correctly, in, in in the case of Lian Feng, it was actually Harvard Business School. Yep. Um, and and they sort of and how they then implemented what they learned in the US basically uh, uh, in terms of reforming um, the structure of enterprises um, um, in in Hong Kong uh, sort of that were more traditional Chinese enterprises before that. So I think yeah. that's sort of the, this the, the, the description of this kind of moment in your book is, is 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 really very important and something we haven't really looked at again um, from for, from from the sort of more broader Chinese business history standpoint
2: when Victor Feng in particular was a faculty member at HBS for two years. And then when he returns to Hong Kong in, in part, you know, to take over Lee and Fung with his brother, he also teaches at Lee Chou Ming's MBA program at the Chinese mm. university, you know, and so kind of really making very tangible those links between education and business. And that, um, you know, uh, also I should emphasize Lee Chou Ming is descended, the vice chancellor of the Chinese university was descended from the Li of the Li and Feng. So you know, um so, well, deeply interconnected as part of a worldview in which education is not just a status symbol, but a key kind of um strategy uh for the future, which maybe sounds really obvious uh in some sense, but that we really don't emphasize very much in business history um as how one of the ways in which companies transform find new markets uh, f- uh develop partnerships, et cetera is through old educational connections or ideas
1: yeah absolutely and i think um again I think this is sort of well, I don't want to sort of open up another candle but but i think in the, particularly <laughs> in the introduction you 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 make the point that of course there has been quite a lot of scholarship on sort of uh you know native place networks and the importance they played in uh uh, in business in China and so on, but I think in, what, what comes out really out of your book as well is that uh, you know educational networks, what kind of importance they, you know, how important they were, and how again those, you know, in particular trans-Pacific connections that came out of that uh, played an important role for Hong Kong. I think um, so. I think giving sort of a bit, yeah. Please go ahead.
2: No, just as 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 um, anyone you know uh, familiar with Sinophone cultures plural, you know, can testify that, you know, the importance of your, your Tongshe, you know, and, and your classmates and school affiliations is, is very evident. Um, and that simultaneously um, we haven't explored nearly as much how much educational networks um, shape all sorts of possibilities and, and worldviews and connections. Um, and that often in the case, I think um, of these individuals it's overlooked because they are also native place associates, you know? And so there's all sorts of linkages in between these individuals. Um, But of course it was formative to their intensity of their connection and the future possibilities that say both of them went, you know, to Harvard. Um, You know, that that that, that time together in the U.S. um, was formative. So the the example in chapter five with the banker H.J. Shen, um you know you have abs- to understand shen as the first ethnically chinese manager at the hong kong bank you i think absolutely must also understand francis penn who is his lifelong best friend and they are constantly inseparable um and that through penn you, you get a much bigger picture of of this networks that they're immersed in and what they're doing you know and kind of um collaborating with US government associates uh, sending their families to the United States and very carefully always kind of mapping their movements onto one another in a way that is um, in some sense touching of, you know a lifelong friendship um, but also revealing as to um, you know what else is going on besides formal banking operations
1: mm-hmm. yeah no, absolutely I think that's really you know the, the side of the of, of, is on the side of, of these of these networks and educational networks really really um, Really fascinating to read about. Um, so let's move in in, in sort of to, into the last two chapters of your book, which uh, deal with the sort of uh, from the nineteen seventies China's mainland China's opening up and the role of Hong Kong in that. And I'm you already um, mentioned and, and started to talk about sort of I think one of the main interventions you make, and that is of course that uh, we normally think you know the the if you sort of open up an ordinary history book, nineteen seventy eight is sort of the the um, the, the Sort of a big turning point, and then China opens up, and 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 so on. But you say that actually, we if we look at this process, certainly if we look at it from Hong Kong, this all starts somewhat earlier. So I, I wonder whether you could sort of explain what led you to that conclusion. It,
2: again, it was the sources, um, and that when you go through, for example, the um, the American Chamber of Commerce's monthly magazine or the General Chamber of Commerce's monthly magazine, all of which are in the HKU Special Collections, you know, it's China, China, China from 1971 on and full of very rich details about the deals that are ongoing, the new trade possibilities that are going on, how different chamber members are visiting Shanghai and Beijing and meeting with very senior people to discuss oil exploration or chemical partnerships and, and so on and so forth. Um, and that the because the United States was far and away Hong Kong's largest trading partner, the legalization of Sino-US trade in 1971, you know, sets off a ding, ding, ding bell uh, for a lot of diverse, not just the Kwa but a lot of different actors, business people in Hong Kong, that here is the opportunity to connect really, really, really low-cost labor with our US, primarily our US clients and partners. and so, you know, kind of the very tangible example to use this through line again of, of Li and Feng, they immediately, 1972, begin sourcing their fireworks brands since they were sourcing them before in Macau, and they move it in to, uh, I think, around Guangzhou, um, you know, and kind of, um, you know, make a bundle. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, and that those possibilities, while they might seem small and and don't, Compare necessarily with the huge joint ventures and things that are going to come later. Um, gives people know-how, gives people confidence that this is real. This isn't a, a one hundred flowers campaign kind of trick that's going to disappear in six months, um, and builds all sorts of patterns of continuity and engagement. Um, you know, and so that um, under compensation trading ventures, which was a an elaborate form of barter that also happened in Eastern Europe in detente, um, you know, Hong Kong companies are able to begin to access mainland laborers, particularly in Baoan County, um, and send them machinery and then get back apparel or other goods to to export. And that a lot of the time this involves quite serious problems, you know, quality control issues, um, you know, communications barriers, um, but over the 1970s, this builds and builds, and and there are hundreds of ventures that are ongoing already by December 1978, that that famous date. Um, and so, and even kind of um, arrogantly or or presumptuously, there's very active conversation before that date um, in Hong Kong about what's coming and the reforms that they just presume are going to happen, uh, now that trade has opened up now that these possibilities are developing.
1: And yeah, no, absolutely. I think that is really, again, a point that is really, um, with the sources particularly that you use is very convincingly argued, I think in the book that of course, um, you know, we sort of have to get away from this one point in 1978 and, and look at uh, other things that already started somewhat earlier. Um, so moving then on to to, to the last chapter uh, in the book, uh, where there you then actually look at the 1980s, and I think sort of show in a very very interesting way how you have certain reformers uh, within the PRC in mainland China that then start to cooperate and build relations um, uh, with, with these Kuasheng elites. Um, and that, of course, then again, uh, I think, uh, sh- sort of sh- sheds a different light uh, on on the Chinese sort of starting economic reforms that that, that we that we normally know uh, of, um, so I wonder whether you could talk a bit more about that. What happens in the 1980s and and, and what connection there was between these reformers in mainland China and the Kuomintang?
2: Yeah, the 1980s chapter really is kind of a story of the the evolution of the Kuomintang strategies. Um, you know, from connecting Hong Kong with the United States to now connecting China and the United States through Hong Kong as a key permutation in this evolution. And that as economic reforms gain momentum and as networks build that build trust, that build confidence, again, that, that all of this is real, that Deng Xiaoping is trustworthy and that he will do what he says he's going to do, um, this opens up even more possibilities. Um, and so the example that, go into a lot of detail in chapter eight about is Gordon Wu and the Guangshen expressway. Um, And that, you know, this isn't just compensation trade. This is a multi-billion dollar, you know, decades long project that really was his idea. Um, And for better or for worse, um, kind of railroaded into place and did, you know, a lot of the tedious work to convince Guangzhou officials Guangdong officials, Beijing officials, that this was something that they needed to do. Um, And that, you know, very, again, very logically, many PRC officials are skeptical because no one in China at that point owns a car. Um, And, you know, (laughs) why do we need to build an expressway when, um, you know, most Chinese people's transport is by bicycle? Um, And that kind of seeing that future and seeing what it would enable you know, and that all the low-cost labor in the world in Guangdong is not useful if you cannot get the production that they, the, the, the laborers produce to the market. Uh, and that an expressway linking the whole of the Pearl River Delta opens up a huge field of potential development and investment. Um, and so Wu and, and the expressway, I think, are a really illustrative example Of where again it yes it is money it's hong kong money that is in part facilitating this but also expertise vision and connections to the world you know and that there are japanese investors into the expressway american investors into the expressway um and kind of um, a whole campaign of advertising what what the expressway will will do uh, and enable you or you or you to come to china and Tap into the labor available in the Pearl River Delta, um, and so kind of that that partnership is, I think, it cannot be overemphasized as how important that is as an advantage for, particularly the Pearl River Delta and Guangdong, um, to develop very rapidly in in tandem with the world market.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think again, the the you know the point you you make, I think, very forcefully, uh, and, and 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 that is really useful as to. And, you know, if you look at the Kwasang during this period, that it's really not, it's not just about money, which is, is I think, what what people mostly think about when they think about Hong Kong during this period. But it is, you know, expertise and connections that were built uh, in the decades before that then uh, are really helpful uh, uh, for China's takeoff.
2: Yes, and that, you know, um, (laughs) phrase this carefully, um, that while you can claim that, say, Wu's expressway, you know, was done out of patriotism and a desire to help China's development. It's also that, you know, he understands, his partners, the other Hong Kong investors, you know, understand simply how profitable this will be and that they already have the U.S. client base and they already have the sophisticated product that they know sells well. So now if they can cut their labor costs by 80%, you know, um, they will be able to deliver much much more product for uh you know, <laughs> an enormous enormous amount of money um and that while Hong Kong was already doing very very well this process turbocharges the capital accumulation and wealth accumulation of this very particular subset of Hong Kong people um you know at the the gateway to to China's reform and opening
1: no absolutely yeah um. All right. I mean, before, I can already see that, you know, time is sort of uh, ringing up, but I, I sort of maybe as a, as a sort of a, a question to, to bring this all together, um, I was wondering whether you could talk a bit, I mean, we've talked a lot about Hong Kong now, of course, uh, uh, um, the focus of your book, but I wonder whether you um, can talk a bit about, you know, if we step back from Hong Kong, what then again, the Hong Kong story that you're sort of telling um, tells us more broadly about globalization in in the period after uh, World War Two,
2: I think the most important analytical point that the book tries to make, at least, is that as you mentioned briefly before, we tend to assume that the driving agency of globalization came from the global North and very often white people in New York, London, etc., um, and that made in Hong Kong really tries to emphasize that you we need a more sophisticated map and terrain of the so-called the world. And that even within a place that on paper and statistically looked very, very poor, um, like Hong Kong, you have a set of people who are extremely well prepared to compete um, and to understand the terrain of the post-war global economy and to move very rapidly to take advantage of that, um, terrain, you know, for themselves or, and, or, uh, their company, etc. Um, and that in restoring agency to so-called global South or th- and third world actors, um, we also get a much more complicated picture about power and privilege in globalization and that, um, you know, Hong Kong public memory likes to celebrate the, the very exceptional, rags to richest tycoons like Lee Ka-Shing. and that as as my reviewers of the manuscript initially pointed out you know to me you know those people are not present um, you know in this book um, and that is that is because you know the vast majority of Hong Kong elites actually come from a very long line of inherited privilege um, and that you know kind of their participation in globalization from this very unusual place Hong Kong um, was built on a whole system of inequalities and privileges that they had accumulated over the late Qing and Republican eras, you know, and that over many generations, um, kind of the the gap between the Kwa as actors and their fellow refugees was a really, really vast one. You know, and and as much as um many Hong Kong people did very, very well, and the rising tide lifted many boats uh, a lot of people got a lot higher a lot faster um and that um particularly with a prestigious education and advantageous social capital as the the quote at the front of the book i think captures um you can lose all your money uh, and all all of your companies etc but so long as you have the right connections and the right pedigrees you may well be able to get it all back and more um you know with a little bit of luck and hard work and that um that I think is another part of the globalization story and the economic development stories that, um, isn't emphasized enough.
1: Yeah, no, I, uh, I think, um, you know, fascinating. I think that that's really, uh, 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 you know, just again to stress that, you know, this is not a book that is, uh, um, that is sort of just something for historians of Hong Kong or, or modern China, but I think it really tells a larger story that has been overlooked um about uh, globalization uh in uh in the second half of, of the 20th century. And and Hong Kong is sort of a fascinating case study in your book and these it edits to again, as you say, bring about and stress this agency outside of the you know economic and financial capitals of the West. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and and brings that very much into the story of, of globalization sort of in the last yeah you know, 70 years or so. Yes. Um, yeah. Um, but uh, we've already taken up uh, quite a bit of your time, and I don't want to keep you uh, too long. But of course, uh, you know, as always, before we close, I thought um, I wanted to ask you. We, go, we are, of course, very interested to know. Um, you know, know that the book is done. Um, what you're working on now, uh, and uh, uh, whether it's connected to to, you, to the book or something completely different? Um, yeah, I wonder whether you can talk a bit about that.
2: Yeah, no, the, uh, as I mentioned before, uh, kind of the seed for the next project came through Li Choming and his MBA program at the Chinese University. And what struck me there was that when he began announcing that he was going to start this program, the British colonial administrators that he was corresponding with did not know what an MBA program was. Um, and as this is clarified for them, um, they very succinctly point out that this is impossible because there are no MBA programs in the United Kingdom at this point, And thus a British overseas colonial territory cannot offer degrees that are not legally recognized in the United Kingdom. And so that, I mean, that, that was one of those moments where I sat back in the chair and was like, wow, like I had not realized how recent all of that is and the kind of global obsession with the MBA as a status symbol, um, uh, particularly in China. Um, And so the new project is about the history of scientific management in quotes um, over the course of the 20th century in China and kind of moving from previous conceptions of management. Of course, China has a very long history of, you know, complex bureaucracies and hierarchies that need, what we would now call management, Um, that over the early 20th century are transformed through the the discourse of Taylorism and other uh, scientific uh, management innovations, and then have become very, very influential in both the nationalist and early PRC development technocracies, you know, and kind of development plans about thinking about how to, quote-unquote, scientifically manage and organize an economy and how you train people, to do that work um, that then the project uh, concludes by then looking at the growth of the MBA in China since the 1980s, 1990s, um, and kind of these many different permutations and chapters of uh, evolving management thinking in the Sinophone and Trans-Pacific worlds. Because the particular project will emphasize, a lot of this is uh, in connection with US educated overseas returnees. Uh, so kind of a conceptual link between the two projects there as to the interconnections between education and business.
1: Yeah. Wonderful. That sounds absolutely fascinating. And, um, you know, having had the chance to uh, already listen to, to a paper of yours on that uh, topic, I, I certainly, uh, I look forward a lot to, to learning uh, uh, more about that in the future. Oh, thank you. Um, yeah, but all that uh, remains for me now is to thank you so much for 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 taking the time to talk to uh, us today, to talk to 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 be on the podcast and talk about your book. Um, and as I said, I look forward uh, very much to um, uh, to the next project and probably welcoming you to the podcast uh, again. Then, so again, thank you very much, Peter. I uh, I really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you. I did as well.